It's nice to have the podium back. So I knew that was a new song that you guys just did, but uh, it's a song by a guy named John Newton. Does anyone know who that is? He wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, he was a, he's a guy who was a slave trader and had a massive conversion during a storm, not unlike the one that Jonah experienced thousands of years before. Uh, it's a beautiful song about um, how sometimes you don't feel close to God, but you are, because it's not of your feelings. So, uh, anyway, so how's everybody doing? Happy, fabulous. Um, anybody, everybody, okay for the most part. We're, you know, falls upon us. It's breaking fast. Um, I know Cruz doesn't feel like it, but I promise you, as an Albuquerque on Saturday and Saturday night, it felt a little bit more fallish. So it might come down here. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about who I am. You're like, who is this guy? Um, explain to me about him. Uh, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister for this thing called RUF, Reform University Fellowship, which is a ministry on campus. Uh, and let me tell you a little about what this Christian ministry does. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the with it and the without it, for the Eagle Scout who can pitch a tent, make a fire, and roast up some <laughs> s'mores in a downpour with only a compass. <laughs> For the failed Cub Scout or Brownie among us, who still buys Girl Scout cookies out of guilt and self-loathing. And let's face it, Thin Mints are delicious. Okay. Alright, exists for those who are just visiting Christianity and those who have made Christianity their home. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, Thanks for coming. Welcome. We hope to get to know you, and we hope you get to know us. And by us and we, I mean the people who lead worship. I mean people who read scripture, small group leaders, uh, people who are regular attenders, uh, maybe you um, out there. So anyway, um, let me go ahead and pass this out. We're actually going to pass out the camping sign-up retreat. I know that... Camping retreat. The camping trip retreat. What is this called? Camping trip only. Um, we're gonna pass this out. The sign up along with the RUF sign up. I'm kind of doing it weird. So um, at the very least, if you're nervous, you can just kind of fill out your name. I'm gonna start over here. And then let me explain uh, as you guys are doing this. A couple things. The sign up in general is just for to get more information, uh, to get in the inside of RUF if that really even really exists. Um, basically, join our Facebook group, NMSU RUF, or, or sign up on email. If you've already signed up for our email, don't sign up again, okay, please. Um, you're just going to get two emails, you're not going to be happy about that. We're really not trying to spam you, I promise you. Um, the other thing uh, that I want you to think about, too, is this is a great first step, but we'd love for you to get more involved and find out more about RUF. If you're interested in doing that, uh, maybe, maybe come and check out a Bible study or uh, a lunch. I'd especially recommend a Bible study. There's a lot of great options, a lot of different times for people's schedules. Um, and we're studying a lot of great books of the Bible. It's a great way to meet people and really kind of wrestle with something, what this Jesus thing is about um, as a college student. Finally, look, camping. I mean, anybody? Yeah, I mean, uh, this weekend, Rio de Janeiro, it's crisp up there. Uh, I'm pretty sure apple cider just falls from the heavens. Uh, that's right here um, and here's what I want to tell you like some of you if you grew up in an urban city center like I did and never lived in a town uh, smaller than a half a million people until you moved to Crucis um, you can not be afraid okay I'm giving you permission not to be afraid uh, you don't have to be a camping pro we're bringing an eagle scout who's going to do everything for us yay uh, we have extra gear like sleeping bags and tents for you um We'll work around your work schedule. So you can come for two nights or one night. Uh, that's what Michael was saying with the different times we're leaving. Um, and look, you don't have to take out any loans for this. <laughs> Promises. $20, I think you can do it. That includes gas, okay? So that's pretty cheap. Um, and you know, like we're not, we're not pulling out stops. S'mores will be there, campfires. Just saying. I'm not gonna buy you a pair of chacos, but. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
so look, sign up if you're interested. If you have more questions, talk to me, talk to Jen. Can you raise your hand? Jen, she's kind of on the floor. I didn't, Hi, Jen. I'm not telling her to be there, just for the record. I don't, <laughs> it's because of the, it's comfortable now? Okay. Um, so look, the shameless plug is over. So feel, feel ashamed for me, and maybe join the camping trip, right? Okay. So this semester in large group, we've been discussing uh, two, we've been discussing two stories which are really about one story. We've been discussing Jonah and Elijah. And I know we haven't gotten to Elijah yet, so we've really been focusing on Jonah, and we've been looking to look at Jonah at the book of Jonah, shocker. And really the theme of what we're, we're doing is, is summed up in the title, Tracing the Heart of God, the story behind the stories of Jonah and Elijah. And really, we're looking at these two lives for a particular reason. There's a lot of us in Jonah and a lot of us in Elijah, and their stories highlight God and his story in a beautiful way that many of us haven't seen. So that's what we're after, and that's what we're looking for. Um, tonight, we're continuing our discussion of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Um, if you haven't been with us, or if you forget to remember every week what we've been talking about, um, let me catch you up to speed. Uh, this is the authorized, paraphrased version of the book of Jonah, which I'm thinking about publishing. Um, it's so amazing. So, chapters one and two. Can you believe we're halfway through the book? I mean, I've been cruising four or five verses at a time. This has just been, it's been like a super highway over here. Um, I think I might have been to the internet. So, anyway, uh, here's what happened. There's this guy, Jonah, he's kind of a big deal. Okay. He's a prophet. God speaks directly to him. You know how it goes. Anyway, he hears from, Je- he hears from God. Um, and God says, hey, Jonah, go to those people of Nineveh and tell them to stop worshiping gods and to stop skinning people alive. Okay? And Jonah says, hey, God, nah. And he kind of takes off the opposite direction. Okay? Uh, and then God says, not so fast, Jonah. And he sends a storm and a great fish to bring Jonah back to where he started, back to the mission of Nineveh. And in the belly of the fish, uh, Jonah finally has this moment where he cries, Uncle, uncle, okay, he's got a, God's got him in a half Nelson. He realizes that, he says, I need to go and do what you want. Uh, this giant game of hide and seek is no good. And so Jonah gets spit out by the fish, upshucked, if you will, onto the dry land, back where he started from. And this is where we're, we're at, chapter 3. Amazing. Okay. I mean, we spent so much time on chapter one that everyone was like, we'll never get to this book. <laughs> but you know how like, sneakily I did chapter two like, in a week? So um, we're going to not do as much for chapter three, so don't get too excited. Okay. So look, this, this word-for-word paraphrase is still echoing in your minds, in the recesses of your heart. Uh, would you turn to Jonah chapter three, verses one through four? I told you we weren't going to get very far. Uh, if you can stand for the reading of scripture, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Check out your bulletin inside, right hand side. It could be green, it could be blue. Uh, dealer's choice. Okay. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, it's easier for the heavens and the earth to pass away than one letter, one letter of the word of God to become void. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we ask that this time you'd meet us here. Uh, we need your spirit. Make this place holy by your presence, by people coming together to hear what you have to say to us in one man's story, uh, in one city's story, about your grace and your care and your glory. And I pray, Father, that those things would be impressed upon our heart tattooed upon our soul, that you, Father, would be at the forefront of our thoughts, and that this time would not leave us the same. Lord, we pray that you would bind our wandering heart to you in your mercy.
in this time. Give us ears to hear your truth. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is the message, and all its glory, that Jonah ran away from, and has come back to, and is now carrying forth in Nineveh. This is what God told him to say before the storm, before the sailors, before the whale, and now in Nineveh. And if we put ourselves in Jonah's shoes, or rather, if we put the words of Jonah in our mouths, my guess is they rub us a little raw. Imagine saying, yet 40 days, in blank, Albuquerque, Crucis, shall be overthrown. This message rubs us raw. This message makes us a little bit uncomfortable because it lacks nuance, right? There's no how to pray the sinner's prayer. There's no, God has a wonderful plan for your life. There's no um, God's mercy or love. There's not even mentioned in this. It's just, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What Jonah basically says, it sounds like this. He sounds like he's yelling, you're going down. You're going down, Nineveh. You're going down to downtown and down beyond downtown. That's kind of, and he's doing this inside of city walls, by the way, that are covered, covered with enemy body parts. So he's gone to the enemy field, so to speak, and he's doing this, and he's saying, you're going down to a bunch of people who he doesn't even know. And I think as we kind of contemplate what Joe, Jonah did, and we put those words in our mouth to speak, there's a certain fear factor for us. Here, you know, saying something you think no one wants to hear, and you're hoping they don't insult you or beat you up or worse. But I think behind the fear, there's this internal cringe. There's this feeling of embarrassment. It's the same way I mentally cringe every time I pass a church sign that condenses the gospel message of Christianity into a bad joke. Need a lifeguard? Ours walks on water. <laughs> Literally a sign. If that's your church, I'm sorry. <laughs> Consolation prize, it's near my house. <laughs> but look, this might just be a time of personal confession for maybe 30 minutes, but bear with me. Right here, right now, right here, right now, signs and messages make me feel like not doing this job. Like signs and messages like that a bad joke. Repent, or not even repent, just in 40 days you'll be overthrown. Those things make me not want to be a Christian minister. I guess maybe that's just a confession. Maybe you're going to have to deal with that. Roll that over in your minds and your hearts. Here I am. Here I stand. I can do no other. It's at times like these, cringing the most internally, twisted in knots in my soul, in my heart, that I turn to Frederick Buechner. I turn to Frederick Buechner Look, you don't have to know much about Frederick Buechner. Here's what you need to know. I have a maybe unhealthy pastor-preacher-man crush on Frederick Buechner. Borderline, maybe full-blown bromance with Frederick Buechner. Uh, but who's counting, really, right? My, my incredible love for him. Okay. And I recently read one of his sermons about my, our frustration with what I would call bad evangelism. Okay. Now, okay, maybe this isn't your frustration. I'm willing to admit that. And maybe this just feels like a, a half an hour long therapy session for me. And I'm sorry about that. It's like being told monologue about someone's dream that you don't really understand and you weren't there. And you were in the dream, they say, but you weren't dreaming the dream, so it's very confusing. So I'm sorry if that's, if that's the case. But I do think that behind this all, we have this sort of, whether we want to admit it or not, kind of revulsion over certain ways of saying the message of Jesus. Um, and I like the way that Beekner puts it. Beekner writes about, in his sermon, he's talking about um, driving down the highway and seeing the familiar signs as he drives by, like the pizza place, the shaving cream ad, you know, the traffic pattern warning, like five to seven minutes away. And then all of a sudden, he turns his head and he sees in giant white letters, Jesus saves. 
That's it. Jesus saves. Maybe it's whitewashed on a wall or a bridge. Maybe it's on a cliff side. Maybe it's on a giant built bulletin board. Just a black bulletin board with those white letters. All caps. No exclamation point. And really what Beekner starts to wonder out loud is about who graffiti Jesus saves on a bridge or on a cliff. Who wrote this? God, and he writes, he writes this, God only knows what kind of person must have crawled up there with his bucket and his brush to slap the words on. A man or a woman, young or old, drunk or sober, by daylight or by dark, and God only knows what reason he or she may have been doing it. Just the way he did it. Just there. Regardless of the person or the reasons, the effect is the same, according to Beekner. A wince caused by embarrassment. A wince caused by an embarrassment of the, just the words, plain and simple, Jesus saves. Saying Jesus in that space along the highway is something, is something like saying something very, very personal in a public space, in a place that's very, very public. And it would be easier for us if the sign said something like Christ or God, right? Instead of just Jesus, that name. It's not like we can rest in some sort of objective theological fancy. We have to confront a person in a public space. And frankly, religion in general is difficult for us to look through, religious or unreligious. It's embarrassing to the unreligious because although that person doesn't have it anymore, isn't especially with religion, he really hasn't rooted it out in the bottom of his soul. It still festers as a kind of reproach every time he sees Jesus saves. And for the religious person, although he still does have it, it seldom looks more threadbare or out of date when set against the 75 mile per hour neon lights, cluttered and clamorous world represented by the highway. What am I saying? All I'm saying is this. All Beekner is saying is this. Here we are, religious and unreligious, all of us in this room. Here we are, with Jonah once again. In Jonah's shoes, walking around Nineveh. Scared and a little embarrassed. Cringing at what God is calling us to, daunted by the message that he wants us to believe for ourselves and to share with other people we don't even know. But our passage this evening tells us why, why we should believe this message, Jesus saves. Nineveh will be overthrown in 40 days. Why we can call out to people who we hardly know. Why? It's because it's a good and it's a gracious overthrow. It's a good and a gracious overthrow is the message. And because it's a good and gracious overthrow, we see a few things that help us to motivate us. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is what it tells us. This is what it shows us. God overturns bad for good through Jesus Christ. God overturns bad for good through Jesus Christ. Therefore, go tell about it to the good and the bad folks around you. Okay? Go tell about it to the good and the bad folks around you because God overturns bad for good through Jesus Christ. This what's amazing is even this outline, this passage has been so encouraging to me and I hope it's encouraging to you because even the outline changes our motives. Even the outline is about sharing God's message of rescue with other people. Not out of our fear, not out of our embarrassment, but out of God's love and God's glory. And here's how the outline does that. Verses 1 through 2, we see God's grace as he renews a failed Jonah. Verse 3, we see God's care as he loves the evil city of Nineveh. And in verse 4, we see God's glory as he gives Jonah a hope-filled message. So we can really divide this passage by what it's saying about why we share about God. Verse 1 and 2, God's grace. Verse 3, God's care. Verse 4, God's glory. Let's begin where we left off last week. God's grace, his rescue, his renovation project on us, on Jonah. Look with me in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Okay? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3 should feel a little bit familiar. In fact, more than a little bit familiar, it should feel almost identical to the very start of this book. Of chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the original Hebrew, this translated passage, that original language, the first five words of verse 1 of chapter 3 are the exact same five words that the book of Jonah begins with. Likewise, the first seven words of chapter 3, verse 2, are the same seven words that chapter 1, verse 2, begins with. And what's the point of like that interesting mirroring detail, right? Like, why is that important? It's really important because you see that this careful reproduction is telling you something very, very important. The mission of Jonah is the same. It's exactly the same. With very little alteration. Jonah gets the same mission even after the storm, even after the disobedience, even after running away. He gets the exact same mission from God. Basically, God brings Jonah back, back to where he started, and God starts again with Jonah and again with his mission to Nineveh. He doesn't give up on his mission, and he doesn't give up on Jonah. And again, this is a picture, and I love this for the book of Jonah. It's a picture, a narrative definition of what God's grace looks like. Do you see there's no human, there's no earthly reason that God should continue to use a man like Jonah? He has run the opposite direction, as far as he knew to run from God and from the mission to Nineveh. And yet, God gives him a second chance, a new beginning. Why? What is God showing us? I think you just have to really soak this in. Don't take this for granted. In the Old Testament, there are prophets that failed their commission and were devoured by lions. <laughs> okay. This Jonah ran the opposite direction, and here he is getting back in the game. Look, Jonah didn't just fail. <laughs> He didn't just fail. He failed big time. Big time in God's mission. Look, professional teams, strike that. Even little league teams, okay? They cut you from the roster for far less than what Jonah did. (laughs) And look, that's just a game. That's just a game that really means nothing. I don't care how cool the trophies are. Okay? It doesn't mean anything. And God's mission, that's life itself. For these Ninevites. And there God is, putting Jonah back in the game. Jonah has cost God time, he's cost God energy, he has cost God love, he's cost God attention, and yet God picks Jonah back up, brushes him off, and gives him a brand new start. The same start as he started book one, verse one, chapter one. And here's what God is saying about his grace. The grace that saves us and renews us. This is what he's saying to us about this. And by the way, I'm borrowing from this guy named Tullian Chavidian. Okay? That's the best I can do. This is the first of two names I can't pronounce. Okay? <laughs> you can keep tracking if you want to. <laughs> keep, keep a schedule. Um, he's an author and a pastor. We'll just call him Tullian. How about that? Okay. First, this is very important. God doesn't hold a grudge against us, and neither should we hold a grudge against other people. Um, Jonah offends God look, he basically gives God the middle finger and says get out of my life and I'm going to get out of your life and leave me alone and let me do what I want and he goes off to Tarshish uh, treasure time and tropical Tahiti filled Tarshish okay? how many seeds I can put there I don't know but look, and the, look at God's grace with Jonah okay? he drags Jonah back it's not like Jonah came swimming back in a rowboat or, or sorry stroking back in a rowboat or swimming back you know, and doing, doing the freestyle funk crawl or whatever, okay? He doesn't make Jonah do anything when he comes back. He doesn't give God, God does not give Jonah a lecture with his mission, okay? God doesn't make Jonah do 12 hard labors to prove that he can be back on God's good side. No, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, because of Jesus, because he paid the ultimate price for the offenses, the middle finger, 
that Jesus' people gave to God. Because he did, he did that, for those who believe, God doesn't hold the sins of his people against them. God doesn't hold the sins of his people against them. There's no grudge. And because God doesn't hold the way that we hurt him, the way we hurt ourselves, the way that we hurt others, because he doesn't hold that against us, we don't have to hold the hurts that people do to us against them. Does everyone catch the application here? Here's what I'm telling you. Erase the mental tally marks. Erase them. That you versus your best friend, quote-unquote friend. I'm sure it's already in the quotation marks in your mind. I'm not sure he or she is my friend. Because how many times that person has betrayed you versus how many times you've been loyal? Okay? Throw out the scorecard that you're keeping with how many times you've cleaned the common room in the kitchen and how many times your roommate hasn't. That's what not holding a grudge looks like. But what's amazing about God is it doesn't stop there. It just keeps compiling and compounding. God doesn't lower the bar of what's okay either. And neither should we. He doesn't lower the bar of what's okay. So look, God doesn't add to Jonah's mission. He doesn't make it harder. But he also doesn't make it easier. Right? He doesn't subtract from the mission. God doesn't think, well, shucks. Jonah, you tried so hard... Maybe I should ease up on you, little fella, right? There's not this moment where he gets down on a knee and talks to him face-to-face and says, Jonah, that was a hard place I sent you. Maybe I'll send you somewhere a little easier. Or, you know, that mission about yelling that that Nineveh will be overthrown, maybe I'll give you some kinder words to say. No, he doesn't. He doesn't change the mission. And this is important for us. Look, we live in an age of bumper bowling. No gutter balls. We live in an age of foam dodgeballs. Okay? No one can get hurt. We live in an age of the opportunity room when you get in trouble in school instead of detention. That's the age we live in, okay? And look, in that age, I want you to understand this. It's very important. God doesn't wink. He doesn't shrug at your sin, at my sin. He doesn't. At infinite cost to himself, he gave his son to pay for our sins. A son who didn't just act nice and say please and thank you and hold the door for all the ladies in Jerusalem, okay? This is a son who fulfilled everything that God required to be a good person. To be truly good and not just a neighbor that brings a cup of sugar over. And here's the call. Because God has called good and bad clearly for us. Because he made it clear what it is. We need to call it clearly for other people. We do the same for other people. Here's something very faithful to do. In all humility, call out your friends, your roommates, and your family when they do something wrong. I dare you. Here's why. How else are they going to know they need Jesus? If they never see that they fail, if you never see that you fail, what's the point? What are we doing here? We need Jesus. Finally, third point. About why, and I'm just, I'm spending a lot of time on some purpose. You've got to understand grace. We've got to understand grace. God doesn't quit on us, so don't quit on other people. Here's the thing. God could have, maybe he should have just let Jonah hang out to dry. Just let him go off to Tarshish, tropical Tarshish, okay? But he did it. What did he do instead? He moved heaven and earth to find and to bring back Jonah. Move to heaven and earth. Likewise, let's not give up on people who are struggling in our life. Let's not give up on difficult people. Why? Why? Because God doesn't give up on us, after all. Even when we give him the finger and we run the opposite direction. Okay. I've spent some time on this. You've gotten it. Okay. I really want to because I want you to understand what the grace of God has done for us and what the grace of God moves us to do for other people. What does it mean when people say living in and by the gospel? What does it mean when people say I'm gospel-centered or I'm a gospel Christian or gospel this or gospel that? This is what it means. Not holding grudges, not changing or lowering the bar, and not quitting. Knowing that God doesn't do that for us and that we don't do that for other people by the grace of God as much as we can. And this is what motivates Jonah in verse 3. You've got to get this. 
This is why, instead of running in the direction, he runs towards Nineveh. Because he understands God's grace at some level. He understands what God has done in his life. So, let's look at verse 3 together. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. The narrative is in high gear here. Does everyone feel it? The word has come. God's come again. He said, look, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah's thought about it for maybe two seconds. Arose, he's gotten up, and he's gone to Nineveh. Does everyone see there's a huge furious pace going on? And all of a sudden, in the middle of verse 3, it's like someone scratches the record, and all of a sudden, everything screeched to a halt. Right? All of a sudden, we get a description of Nineveh. Like, what's going on there? Right? Why, why all of a sudden, we're like, really got the momentum. I want to see Jonah, you know, run into town. I can hear Eye of the Tiger in the background. <laughs> Look, you know, and all of a sudden, we read, now Nineveh is an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. It's a very short passage. Why spend a verse on that? Or half a verse on that? Why halt this narrative for a piece of description? Here's a better question. Here's an even better question. Why is Nineveh so great? Why is it so great? Perhaps Nineveh is so great because it's a three days journey wide. That's huge for a city. Okay, To take three days to go across the width of a city, even on foot, even with modern cities, that's still a huge length, huge width. And according to some commentators, that has to refer to, like, not just Nineveh, but, like, the surrounding area. It's like saying not just Crucis, but Doniana County. It's like saying not just Albuquerque, but Rio Rancho, and I can't pronounce this, Tierras. Is that? I don't know, anyway. I, I give up. I give up. Thank you. Um, fill, in the, fill in the gap. Um, look, it's just saying, like, it's the whole metropolitan area or county. Now, there's other commentators who say, look, that's totally wrong. It's actually referring to how long it would take to visit Nineveh. It would take one day to enter, one day to kind of see the sites, another day to exit. That's sort of what they would say. Okay? So it's not being used geographically, but to describe a journey. And you know, that debate is awesome, but it's not at all important. Okay? It's like, you know, some people use that to say this isn't historical. Clearly it is. I gave you two reasons why. But really, that's not what the author of the book of Jonah is after. That's not why Nineveh is great. Why is Nineveh great? And you can't actually see this in this translation. It's in the Hebrew, the original language. Nineveh, this is what the Hebrew says in translation, Nineveh was a great city to God. It was a great city to God. This is what they translate exceedingly great in the English Standard Version, in in your pamphlet. Okay. Nineveh's greatness is not about geographic size. It's not about how big it is in terms of geography. It's about this. It's about how much God cares for it. That's what's great about Nineveh, is how much God cares about Nineveh. And that's why there's a screech in the record. But look, before our eyes and our ear, our eyes and our hearts get all misty and sentimental, like, oh, that's so sweet. God caring about Nineveh like that. Uh, he, loves his, he loves cities. Let's not forget that. <laughs> Let's not forget that Nineveh is not just any city, right? This is an evil city. Okay, this is an evil city. I don't care how you define evil. I constantly remind you the people of Nineveh, that is the Assyrians, were well practiced in skinning people alive and impaling them on sticks that were pointed, watching them wiggle to death. Okay, let me give you another quotation from our favorite Assyrian king, second name I can't pronounce. Asur Nasser Paul, the second. <laughs> Here's what he says in his royal memoirs. This is his boast. I took their warriors prisoner. Many of the captives I burned in fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. So he's not messing around. Okay? Assyria is, is the bad boy on the block. Big time. And here's my question. Are we ready to believe that God could care, that God has a heart for people that evil? For a city that evil? Are we ready to believe that God's grace is that big? I mean, Jonah sort of believes that, right? After all, he the storm, three days of darkness, and a fish belly to think it through, to look at his own evils in his own heart. He's seen the depth of his sin, the deeper care of God. We talked about that last week. At some level, maybe certainly not completely, he realizes that no one deserves grace, and so that he can share grace with anyone, and not just some people. 
right? Or perhaps maybe Jonah's just trying out obedience. Maybe he goes, well, that whole disobedience thing didn't work out too well. I got in the, the smaller intestine of a fish for three days. That wasn't a great deal. I almost died, drowning. Maybe I should try this obedience thing. And here's my question for us. Where are we with people like the Assyrians? Where can God love people like the Assyrians? Can he do that? Here's a harder question for us. Do we really get grace? Or are we just trying out obedience so that we can get the boyfriend we want, the friends we don't have, the job after school with the grades? Are we just trying out obedience because disobedience didn't work? Like Jonah, maybe. And here's the test. A friend of mine named Jason, okay, last name Bobo, um, tells the story <laughs> of a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, does anyone know who Jeffrey Dahmer is? All right, in the back there, Jeffrey Dahmer is a serial killer. Okay. Twist and sick. As serial, even in the category of serial killer, he's pretty bad. Okay, he killed 17 men and boys. He raped them. He killed them painfully. He cut them into pieces and he ate the body parts. Okay, yes. Cannibalism. Here we go. Well, Dahmer... Uh, I'm going to tell a joke. I, almost, I couldn't... <laughs> I really tried. Not in my manuscript. I just was like... Okay, what's, what's Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite shampoo? Head and shoulders. sick heart. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. So, Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, okay, he's caught, he's convicted, he's imprisoned. And I don't know if you know this fact about him. In prison, uh, before he was beat to death with a broomstick, true story, um, he, there in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer, okay, he becomes a Christian. Did you know that? No. He believed in Jesus Christ. And by all accounts of his of fellow inmates, of the people who sent him the materials, of the priest or the pastor that met with him, it was a genuine conversion. He believed in Jesus before he died. And this is where my friend Jason's story intersects Jeffrey Dahmer's story. So this became public, that Jeffrey Dahmer had become a Christian. And the blogosphere went nuts. There were all sorts of, well, I guess it was just chat rooms at the time. Blogs were really kind of not there yet. But the, ta- the, the chat rooms went crazy. People were white-hot angry about Jeffrey Dahmer becoming a Christian, right? And here's what a lot of people wrote. This is just a, a vague sort of compilation, uh, uh, a way of putting together all what they said. And they said something like this. This is exactly why Christianity is ridiculous. How can God love Dahmer? How can he love Jeffrey Dahmer? How can a good God love and care for such an evil man? And reflecting on this, uh, Jason said something like this, which I think was really powerful. This is exactly what Christianity is about. This is exactly what Christianity is about. God loving Jeffrey Dahmer is what makes the gospel message so beautifully not about us. Not about what we do or have done. Jesus Christ gives his goodness for our badness for free. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing. Do you get this? That even Dahmer, even serious evil is not beyond Jesus' goodness? Do you get that? Do I get that? All, we all need saving. We all have evil in our own hearts. Who's counting degrees? Do you see this is not just... Look, it's not the Jesus part only of Jesus saves that offends us. It's the saves part too. It's the saves part too. This sign, the message of Christianity says, you need to be saved. You need to be saved and I need to be saved. The sign the message of Christianity says, in the words of Beekner, you have no peace inside your skin. You're not happy, not whole. You'll never make it. You have not and will not make it, at least not without help. In other words, 
I'm a lot more like the bad people than I care to admit. There I am and there they are, all of us in our needy weakness and our subtle cruelty. Returning to our passage for a final time, we see God's glory. God's grace to Jonah and his care for Nineveh lead Jonah to go a day's journey into Nineveh. Notice, Jonah, at God's direction, doesn't stop short of entering, entering Nineveh. He doesn't just preach at Nineveh. He doesn't just stand in the same ledge and shout with a, a megaphone for them to change their ways. He enters a day's journey deep into Nineveh. He goes into the city. There in the midst of their living and their markets and their temples and their gates, at Taos and Fringer and O'Donnell, there he is. Do we really love NMSU like God loves the people of NMSU? Are we willing to risk the embarrassment, the fear, to share God's glorious message of hope with people? And here is another question that follows on that heels. Are we willing to do it in a way that isn't shouting at them from the only the very edge of their lives? Are we willing to take Ajay's journey into the lives of our friends and our roommates, our family and our classmates? Are we willing to share grace and care as well as glory? That's the question that our passage addresses. But finally, what are we daring to share? What is it that maybe we're daring to believe for the first time here? It's the same message that God gives Jonah to share and to believe for himself. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Let's take that apart. 40 days. A special period of time in the Bible. In this passage, many others, it's a period of self-examination. It's a time to weigh this fact. God is deadly serious. He's deadly serious. But what is he so serious about? And it comes in the word overthrow. Overthrow. That's the word. That's what he's so deadly serious about. That's the business end of this message. Overthrow. It has a double meaning. It's like that word inflammable, right? Does that mean it can't catch on fire or is easy to catch on fire? Right? Or that word cleave, like a cleaver cuts things in two, but then you leave and then you cleave two halves joined to a whole. Right? It means both of those things, right? An overthrow means you will be destroyed. You could be saying like, 40 days and you will be destroyed, which is some of your translations in your Bibles. But it could also mean equally, you will be transformed. There's a hopeful edge to the word overthrow. There's a good possibility that Nineveh will be turned upside down. And who else to turn Nineveh upside down but God? God himself. Listen to the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones pulls out the meaning behind verse 4. She says it this way. This is what Jonah's message is to the Ninevites. Even though you run far from God, he can't stop loving you. Run to him so he can forgive you. Even though you run far from God, he can't stop loving you. Run to him so he can forgive you. It's a wonderful message. It's glorious and hopeful, but perhaps it's also a little bit embarrassing. Isn't it? Are we cringing for God? Right? I mean, look, he can't stop loving people that struggle to even love him. That's sort of pathetic. But that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Again, be ignorant. He seems to think that we're wincing for God, and what, he's, what we're wincing for God about is his vulgarity. His vulgarity. Just his brash obsceneness. And this is what he writes. The vulgarity of a God who adorns the sky at sunrise and sundown with colors no decent painter would dream of placing together on a single canvas. The vulgarity of a God who keeps breaking back into the muck of this world. The vulgarity of a God who was born into a cave among hicks and the steaming dung of beasts only to grow up and die on a cross between crooks. The vulgarity of a God who tampers with the lives of crooks and of clowns like me to the point where we come among crooks and clowns like you with white paint and a brush of our own 
And nothing more profound to say, nothing more precious and crucial to say finally than just this. Yes, it's true. He does save Jesus. He gives life. He makes whole. And if you choose to be, you will be with him in paradise. In other words, what makes us say Jesus saves or you will be overthrown is ridiculous gracious, caring, and glorious truth. Jesus lived like a clown to save a clown like me. Jesus died a crook, among crooks, not a crook, among crooks, to save a crook like me. Jesus is God's message translated into our own language. Everything God wanted to say in a person. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, so much of my sin is before me. Uh, so much of our sin is before us. I pray, Father, that we would know your grace, your care, your glory. That as we reach out to love other people, that we would know how profoundly loved we are. As we give, we would give out of what we've received from your Son. Who looked like a clown, who looked like a crook, who was everything you wanted to tell the world in a person. We ask these things in his name. Give us courage. Amen.
everybody. Uh, if you can, join us at International Lights. Um, we're going to be there, kind of hanging out, getting to know each other if you want to come along. Um, again, thanks. And this is the time where I get to give you the benediction, which is a good word from God. I'm not casting a spell on you. Um, there's nothing fishy going on. I'm really just praying the prayer of Aaron from number six. Okay. So receive this good word from God to his people. Stretch forth your hands, lift up your faces, receive the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in that peace from now and forevermore. Amen.